This is Intertractional, an exploration of Star Trek through an intersectional feminist lens. Star Trek is both a reflection of our society and an aspiration for our future. The stories it tells shape our world. Intersectionality explores intersecting forms of oppression and how they affect individuals with compound identities. Star Trek is for feminists. Hi, everybody. Hi, Ryan. <laughs> Hi, Becca. We are, we're back with another episode, obviously. And uh, this one is coming at you right before the end of 2019. I'm not going to sing. You're not going to sing? Are you going to sing? I am the model of a modern major general. <laughs> something, something, something. <laughs> I do not know the rest of the words. I Oh, yeah. I was thinking like a New Year's song. Oh, is there a New Year's song? I might have just been thinking the Happy Birthday song. But happy like... New Year's to <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. What are you doing, New Year's? Oh. New Year's Eve. The end of the decade. My youth. The end of my youth. <laughs> From now on, I'm old, but there will be more Star Trek, so that's a consolation. It's the future. It's the future. We're in the future. To me, it feels like because California had this green energy goal for 2020, oh. and there's lots of milestones around climate change. For That's how I'm thinking about it, and um, I'm trying not to be really depressed. So let's talk about Star Trek and be excited. What yeah. are we talking about I'm today? I'm sorry. I got really buffed out. Um, so we thought it would be fun to talk about the short treks. And the Picard trailer. We watched the short tracks with number one, Spock and Captain Pike. They're really cute. And I'm, I really like that they're fleshing out number one. That's like, that's one of the big things that we want to talk about today is like her character and how she comes to be part of the Star Trek universe and the canon. Who is number one? Who is number one? Right now, what we know of number one is that she was Captain Pike's first officer when he was the captain of the Enterprise. Mm -hmm. We see her in Discovery once in season one, or it might be the beginning of season two. I think it's the beginning of season two. Eating a cheeseburger. Cheeseburger, fries, habanero sauce. You want to order some lighter fluid with that? That goes with the shake. She's played by Rebecca Romaine, no longer Stamos. And I did not recognize her with brown hair. <laughs> yeah, she does a really great job. And I was like, oh, girl, you're killing it. You look just like Magel Barrett, except like kind of updated and with bigger tits. And I was into it. And then uh, she shows up again towards the end of the season. And she's super smart. And we don't know her real name. That's what we know sort of textually from Discovery. What am I leaving out? She first shows up in the pilot episode of Star Trek, the original series, which is, uh, it was called The Cage, and it was the, like, test episode that was produced in order to sell Star Trek, um, and they made pretty significant changes from between the pilot and the first episode as it aired. Yeah, the studio was like, uh, this isn't quite working, but we like the gist of what you're doing. Can you do this again and keep Spock and no one else? Yeah. And they were one of the things that the studio executives complained about was the existence of number one. 
She is a bridge officer. She's the executive officer, second in command. In this pilot episode, she gets to make command decisions. Engineering deck will rig to transmit ship's power. We'll try blasting through that metal. She's left on board the ship because she's the most experienced officer. And then later when Captain Pike gets trapped and nobody else on the surface of the planet can figure out like how to rescue him she comes down with some options she holds like a round table officers meeting that i feel like doesn't show up very much in the original series but is very much in the next generation as a mode yes um and i thought that was cool the way that she's introduced however is just kind of like a record scratch because she's on the bridge she's at the helm i guess And in walks Captain Pike's new yeoman. They like bump into each other. And then he's like, oh, uh." and she's like, oh, I'm sorry, Captain, but you wanted this report by 0500 and that's now. And he's like, well, I guess. She's like this kind of timid, blonde, a little short and very, very young and feminine looking. And uh, I was I sort of projected a lot onto her. I was like, Mm. you remind me of me when I was an intern. And I looked like I was 12, but I was like, I actually have a really good education. Take me seriously. And so he was a little annoyed and dismissive of her. And she was like, as you were just saying, no, I'm supposed to be here. And I liked that she was like really trying to hold her own there. And after she walks off the bridge. She's replacing your former yeoman, sir. No, she does a good job, all right. It's just that I can't get used to having a woman on the bridge. There's a beat. And then he turns and looks at number one. No offense, Lieutenant. You're different, of course. Right. <laughs> Implying you're not like the other girls. She's not like the other girls, exactly. And like part of what she's supposed to be, how she's supposed to not be like the other girls, is that she's very logical and emotionless. The Star Trek is series outline says that she is. Um, almost mysteriously female. In fact, slim and dark in a Nile Valley way, age uncertain, one of those women who will always look the same between years 20 and 50, an extraordinarily efficient officer. Which, wait, just before we comment on this, is perfect casting of Rebecca Romaine in the update, who has looked the same from ages 20 to 40-something, whatever she is now. Accurate. Continue. Um... Number one, enjoys playing it expressionless, cool, is probably Robert April's superior in detailed knowledge of the equipment, departments, and personnel aboard the vessel. April is one of the working names eventually for Pike. And so, yeah, she's got, like, in other places, she's referred to as, like, glacier-like. Because glaciers are cold and um, impenetrable. Um, They didn't know what was going to happen to glaciers in the 60s. dark climate change is real um so yeah so she's like this woman who men are attracted to because she's mysterious and then that mystery i think makes up for the fact that she's so competent and smart i i mean i guess my read is different is that she's supposed to be played as like not particularly attractive and that's what makes her more comfortable to have on the bridge right but this idea that she won't age between 20 and 50 and that she has this nile like beauty and dark hair is like okay on some level she is attractive and like that attractiveness is just sort of um harder and less 
feminine. Not le- yeah, less soft, less feminine. Yeah. Not to drive too far away from this in a dark Nile Valley way. This is like really weird. I had to Google it. We think that it's probably referring to Elizabeth Taylor's turn as Cleopatra and like that sense that like people in the 60s thought that Egyptians were white people. Yeah, or ethnically ambiguous kind of Arab looking like maybe yeah. you're white, maybe you're not, you're exotic. And dark just means that you're a brunette. Yeah. <laughs> like you still have blue eyes, whatever, <laughs> but you're but you're dark. And yet, I really liked Majel Barrett's performance yeah how uh, she's really first of all she looks so good she looks really good and yeah and she's not all like her uniform is very um modest Mm -hmm. she's just wearing like a shirt and pants like everyone else yeah her uniform is basically indistinguishable from the male officers which is also a thing that they changed going from this unaired pilot to the actual pilot she has really good hair though it's like long and shiny like a pantene commercial it's like set as though she set it in rollers but not overdone um and it's the kind of hair that looks not fussy and professional and beautiful, but like that would take me hours with my hair texture to like make it look well. Not not achievable. Pantene hair commercial, but <laughs> but still very different than the types of hair we see later on in Star Trek. She, well, actually, this is funny. She, Rebecca Romaine, dyed her naturally blonde hair brunette in order to play this character who was canonically brunette. And then Majel Barrett, who ultimately played Nurse Chapel, also Loxana Troy, and the voice of the computer, um, was made to be blonde. Yes. Apparently, in order <laughs> to get her like screen time to fly under the radar of the NBC executives or whoever the executives were that like decided that they didn't like her from the pilot. And Gene Roddenberry was like, this lady, I love her. She's going to be on this show. I don't care if we have to make her blonde. This must have been before they got married, too. I'm just guessing. Because I feel like once they got married, he could be like, my wife can be on the show. Yeah. I mean, I guess. I think that they were trying to avoid looking like nepotistic or something. Yeah. But I think, I mean, my speculation is that part of his courtship was getting her on the show and if they had already been married he wouldn't have tried so hard oh that's that's my analysis could be wrong total speculation well it worked out she's a great actress she's we wouldn't have the very attractive as a brunette we wouldn't have the canonical <laughs> voice of the computer she has like an alto voice mm-hmm. she doesn't have a high voice it's not super feminine it comes off as very strong it's perfect for number one it's really great for the computer it's exactly like that kind of voice that you hear when the operator talks to you or like siri or like any number of things that are probably actually modeled on her where it's like feminine but like uh strong and authoritative I think I mentioned this already, but the reason that she did not continue on into the original series is that the executives of NBC decided that they didn't like her. The test audiences also reacted negatively to her for the pilot. They were like, why is that woman telling people what to do? And according to Gene Roddenberry, it was like especially the women who watched this test pilot that didn't like her. And like... 
you know, uh, who knows? Who knows if that's true? And I think that it seems totally plausible to me that seeing a woman that is outside the mold of what you have been taught it means to be a woman, your reaction as a woman is going to be more strong than if you're a man. Right. Well, sometimes sometimes you you sort of cringe when other people aren't behaving in the way that you've been socialized to behave. Exactly. So, yeah, for example, like people in line in front of you talking to the barista and being rude and you're like, "Why are they behaving that way?" That's part of you might be, you know, having like a moral judgment or part of you might be just reacting to how you've been socialized and like trying to enforce societal norms onto other people mentally. So, like if women are behaving in ways in which you've been told your whole life to stop behaving, it's going to feel uncomfortable to watch them unless you've already been fighting that. Yes, so exactly. I, I bet a lot of women would have loved to watch her the way that Whoopi Goldberg loved to watch Nichelle Nichols, but those weren't the women in the room right. for that test audience. And that's like kind of coming back to this women policing women idea that we talked about with T'Pol and the mm-hmm. um, the Orion slave girl uh-huh. dressing and like yeah and it's it's a common thing in society for women to heap judgment on other women about how they should behave. It's like yeah. part of how the patriarchy perpetuates itself. And so, fast forward from 1965 to 2019, and we've got number one showing up again, uh, reporting to Captain Pike. Yeah, I just want to talk briefly about the scene where she shows up in Discovery where they're eating the cheese, she's eating a cheeseburger. I don't know if whether he's visiting the Enterprise or she's visiting Discovery, but they're having a little check-in chat about Spock. And she's eating her replicated cheeseburger. I was just so excited that she was coming back because I always felt like she was a missed opportunity and that they didn't super update her style. She's wearing like winged eyeliner. She's like super pale. She has dark hair and she kind of and like everyone else we've seen so far, Michael Burnham, Tilly, other ladies look fairly modern, right? They look like 2019 has cast into the future. But Rebecca Romaine looks like 1960 has been cast into the future. And I'm just like, maybe she's just one of those girls who likes to wear retro clothes, right? Yeah. Like, she's just like has a secret hand-up career on the side or I totally I love that and I think that I think that really fits in with in the short track called Q&A where yes. she and Spock get um where they meet they get stuck in the turbo lift together while they're in the turbo lift they're having all sorts of conversations and at one point she's like why were you smiling when you when you came into the transporter pad and he's doesn't have an answer and she's like this is not Vulcan of you I guess um and if you ever want to get to be in command you have to you have to learn to keep your freaky to yourself and then she starts singing that Gilbert and Sullivan yes. model of a modern major general. She is a freaky, weird musical theater nerd. In addition to being a science nerd, which totally works with her like retro sort of flair, her like toned down retro flair in the middle of uh, a version of Starfleet that doesn't actually seem that retro. I mean, my other theory is that, so this takes place before the original series, and that she's just ahead of the fashion curve, and this is all going to be really cool 10 years from now, and she's predicting it. Mm. So she's like a hipster, and everyone, like 10 years from now, everyone's going to be doing their makeup that way, and she's doing it now. 
I love it. Uh, okay, so really, really short summary of Q&A. Mm-hmm. 15-minute long episode. Spock shows up on the transporter to Enterprise. Uh, number one meets him and walks him to the turbo lift, tells him he needs to uh, ask a lot of questions because he's going to be a science officer. At this point, he's still an ensign. They get to the turbo lift. He's after two questions and she's like, come to the come onto the turbo lift with me. We will go to the bridge. And then we see how cool the turbo lift looks from like the outside, which I have never seen before. Mm-hmm. And then he continues to ask her a lot of questions. The turbo lift gets stuck. He asks her even more questions. Some of them are interesting. Some of them are sort of obscure and techno babbly. Then they bond over singing that song and their freakiness. And he smiles a lot and they have a tender moment. And then she, they get rescued and she swears him to secrecy. And they go up to the bridge and he's introduced to Captain Pike. Mm-hmm. What did you Great. think of it? I thought it was adorable. I want to dig in a lot about this. Like, if you want to be in command, you have to keep your freaky to yourself. When you beamed aboard, Ensign, were you smiling? I didn't know that was something Vulcans could do. I must admit, I found the sight a bit disconcerting. Duly noted. In the future, I will be careful to avoid smiling. No. The strength of a Starfleet crew is in its diversity and differences. I would never ask a crew member to suppress or conceal their nature. I do think one must be aware, however, of how one is perceived by one's comrades. Not because you're half Vulcan, but this is the advice I'd give to anyone whose ultimate goal is command. You're gonna have to learn to keep your freaky to yourself. I think there's a lot of commentary about what it means to be in command in that and like what you're supposed to do when people are looking up to you that we kind of touched on in a previous episode when we talked about how the episode with Kevin and Robin, Robin when we were talking about the enemy within and yeah. Kirk is split into two people. Good Kirk is getting command advice from Spock who tells him uh, you cannot show weakness in front of the crew or you will lose command. They will lose respect for you Mm -hmm. and you will lose command. Yeah. And that like, because he has this conversation as an ensign Mm -hmm. uh, with somebody who he looks up to as a commander, he really takes her advice to heart to hold, to hold in his emotional reactions. Maybe that informed his choice to tell Kirk in that moment that he couldn't be vulnerable in the enemy within so, like, that's definitely, a, like, a retcon that maybe we are the only people who see, but I like it. <laughs> yeah. And he doesn't ask the question, but he implies it. He's like, well, there's a logical question from that. And I guess the question is, what is your freaky? And then she starts singing. I am the very model of a modern major general. I've information, vegetable, animal, and mineral. I know the kings of England, and I quote the fights historical from Marathon to Waterloo in order categorical. I'm very well acquainted, too, with matters mathematical. I understand equations, both the simple and quadratical, about binomial theorem. I'm teeming with a lot of news, with many cheerful facts about the square of the hypotenuse, with many cheerful facts about the square of the hypotenuse, with many cheerful facts about the square of the hypotenuse, many cheerful facts about the square of the hypotenuse. I'm very good at integral and differential calculus. Know the scientific names of being and immaculate. Short of answers, vegetable, animal, and mineral. I am the very model of a modern major general. And it's this interesting idea that I think is like based on like a culture of uh, potential mutiny um, in this world where no one shows any interests or any weakness. Earlier, you and I were kind of contrasting that to 
um, the Next Generation crew. Yeah, so the Next Generation crew sings Gilbert and Sullivan at least on two occasions, and at just least like two out occasions. in the open. I think she breaks her own code here by revealing what her freaky is. I really liked something that you said as we were preparing to record this episode. She feels like somebody who maybe did break down barriers. Perhaps there's some future number one as she grows up and gains like authority that she is more open about this Mm -hmm. and makes it more accepted in Starfleet to let your freaky out. We get to the next generation and all of these people are doing their musical theater whenever they want. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, they all have like weird, uh, like liberal arts hobbies, like they're painters or they play instruments um, they like jazz, they put on Shakespeare, they put on weird plays that are not Shakespeare di- directed by Beverly for some reason. Yeah, they, they, they're really into Sherlock Holmes. And like yes. all of this is like known and it's part of how they interact with each other because they're like, we have these shared interests and they're not, they're, there's no talk about like, is this freaky? And like the notion that um, musical, a love of musical theater is a thing that makes you freaky is so weird to me. But like... I mean, is it? I don't know. I was in the musical theater crowd in high school, right? And we were definitely the weird kids. Hmm. The only kids weirder than us were the band kids. See, I was a band kid. Oh, my And God. so, of course, oh, I don't okay. think any of this is freaky because I'm just like, yeah, I was hanging out in a band. Were you in jazz band? I was in symphonic band, I guess okay, is so what you call it. I remember. The... I was also in marching band. Yeah, no. And I was in a couple, like, quartets and quintets. Oh, my God. That's so dorky. Also, I played solo. Like, yeah, no, what? no, no. I mean, I, I'm not judging you. <laughs> I remember thinking that everyone who was into arts was kind of weird, and everyone who was into sports was considered more mainstream. And we were definitely the kids who were... Um, cool with being queer one day we all had like a cross-dressing day and then we wanted to do it again like a week later so we all planned it and like people in the administration found out about it and told us not to do it i don't know so i just not in a bad way but we were the freaky kids yeah you know wrapping this back into what (laughs) counts to me as freaky you know being being out and kinky and like on the board of the sex positive democratic club and like openly poly, like all of these things feel like the freaky things and admitting that I played flute in band doesn't even register. Yeah. But like, I want to see the Venn diagram between people in those communities and people who are in band and choir in high school. And I think it's like, I think there's like a lot of overlap. Sure. I would guess. I think there's also a lot of overlap of people who love sci-fi. So this is not to imply that number one is kinky, poly, or queer. Although she could be all three of those things. She just doesn't want anybody to know about it. She doesn't want anyone to know anything about her. I think it's to maintain this facade of being glacier-like. Her very first like interactions almost make it feel like she's trying to be Vulcan. Do we know if she's human from the canon? I can double check that, but I... So we know her name is number one, and we're not sure her name might or might not be Una. In the novel Captain to Captain, reading from Memory Alpha, she is referred to as Una. The novel explains that she has adopted the name as far back as her academy days due to her real name being all but impossible to pronounce. So this is all apocrypha. Spock claims that her name is Una, 
Your name is Una. That isn't a question, Hanson. My name is number one. Which makes me wonder what she was getting called like before she was EXO. Was she Ensign number one? So then she sings and then she stops and pauses and looks very embarrassed and a whole bunch of expressions uh, from like joy to like shame to discomfort cross her face. Short in matters, vegetable, animal, and mineral. You are the very model of a modern major general. <laughs> and I also think this is a moment of Spock um, experiencing empathy. Because mm. I think he sees her discomfort and he's like, the way to match this is also by, is by joining in and yeah. like embarrassing myself too. And it's like a real moment of like kindness. Um where it's like he's contemplating if he's going to make himself vulnerable enough to make her feel comfortable. Also, this goes back to something that I always find amusing about Star Trek, which is that random people have encyclopedic knowledge of things that happened in like the 18 or 1900s in Earth history. It's just like they can quote from Shakespeare. They know Gilbert and Sullivan. They are like clear about the history of like, I don't know, World War One. And it's, uh, it's like, I would they really be? Uh, maybe some of them. Picard, it makes sense because he's an anthropologist. But, like, for other people... I have some theories. One, I think there's, like, a second Dark Age. Like, post-World War Three. like, when we, when we show up with people in, like, first contact and they're all ugh, roughing it and wearing mismatched sweaters and... Getting really drunk. Getting really drunk and they seem to be living in tents even though they're building like warp drive engines. I don't I don't really know what's going on in that world. It doesn't seem great though. Mm-hmm. Right? My theory is that there is a great cultural uh blank spot. Yeah, blank spot. So like if people are looking for art to study and for things to read and learn about, they have to go back to the 20th century or earlier. How soon do you think Star Trek is going to reference Hamilton the musical? Oh my god. I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> Um, all right. My uh, money's on Ensign Tilly bringing it up, though. Hell yes! <laughs> can we talk about, can we talk about some of the questions that he asks her? Yes. Oh my god, yes. So he, he starts out by, like, asking her about some sort of tactical thing from some professor that turns out they both had mm-hmm. and hated, but he's brilliant. Actually, I don't but think they use a pro- pro- they don't use a pronoun for that person. Ah, oh, god damn it. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta examine my own cultural biases. Um, he asks her a lot of sciencey questions. Mm-hmm. Um, he asks her if you think that it's that the world is like a construct in our brain and none of this is real. Is that the Matrix one? Yes. <laughs> she, she's not having it. My favorite question that he asks her, though, which is like the last question that he asks her, is, "Do you like eggplant?" Oh my god, she gets totally fed up with him. And I'm just thinking about how if that was delivered as a text message, do you like eggplant emoji would have such a different meaning. Do you think she's asking her if she likes dick? I think that's how I read the scene, yes. And she's like, give me a boost because she like wants to get to the top of the turbo lift to like get them out of there because he mentioned eggplant and she's just like over this whole situation. He then grabs her by the hips and she's like, no, get on your knees. (laughs) And the whole scene is like very like 
flirty and like meme ready. I saw so many get on your knees memes a few months ago when I wasn't watching this and I was like, what is this from? Oh, it's from this. And uh, she then sits on his shoulders like a little kid and he looks very uncomfortable like an awkward he looks like he feels super awkward about it and has all these expressions on his face and it's uh pretty funny it's adorable and then she like whatever she's fiddling with she gets electrocuted and they land on the floor together and she's got like his her leg like over his chest (laughs) or whatever it's pretty it's pretty intimate i think that we are uh reading in a lot of sexual tension that may or may not need to be there but i, I don't think we appreciated made this, it. i don't think we made this up though i don't think so i, I think this feels was, like they were flirting i think this was text <laughs> do you like eggplant <laughs> i think do you like eggplant is subtext <laughs> I can't get do you like it. eggplant is subtext i don't think get on your knees and like flirting with each other and standing right like nose to nose while they're singing was subtext that, that was just text so, if any of you are baby boomers, let us know if you got the eggplant joke. <laughs> I think we can move on now. <laughs> Sorry, boomers. Um, we love you. We love all of you. And also, eggplant means penis. Just in case. My favorite question that he asks is, Have you ever considered that the prime directive is not only not ethical, but also illogical and perhaps morally indefensible? Which made me so happy. Part of me loves the Prime Directive because it's anti-colonialist and we're just going to leave people alone. But as we've talked about on this show and as the fan base is always talking about, it butts up against these problems where it's like, what about this situation where you are leaving these women to be enslaved or uneducated or... like where you're not going to give these people medicine i think it's interesting contextually that when the when star trek was originally airing as as the original series uh the the united nations had a policy very similar to the prime directive about interfering in other cultures like an basically an anti-colonialist directive Mm -hmm. then it was kind of too late at that point (laughs) Very much too late and also like too stringent because then, for example, the Rwandan genocide was not um, something that the UN stepped in to, to try to prevent. You see these kinds of policies being rooted in something logical and positive, trying to not interfere in order to prevent uh, you know, things like Native American genocide, mm-hmm. uh, but then result in a different kind of genocide happening because two cultures in that share the same vicinity cannot get along and one's killing the other. Really what you need is a series of interlocking rules and like a flowchart. If we're going to look at Star Trek not as something to criticize in the way that you in some moments and a lot of the fan base does as a a model for the best of humanity and what we could be and what we could become in a hopeful future like i hope that they do present a series of like interlocking policies that would account for this at some point yeah i mean i think that it's clear that any any law directive like code whatever applies in many but not all cases you need to have some sensitivity around like exceptions of people are being slaughtered people are being oppressed people are being whatever it is that that is being harmed by a non-intervention policy i love that they put this question 
in the mouth of Spock, who I feel like in a lot of ways for a very long time was the heart of Star Trek, despite being an ostensibly heartless character. Uh, and that we see him as a younger man chafing against authority. I, I mean, he definitely follows the prime directive in the future, but like looking at these rules is something to ponder and question. Um, and we really, and we continue to see that throughout this baby episode. We see him be vulnerable. We see him open up to someone who he's only known for a short period of time. We see him smile. He grins even. Yeah, and just acknowledges his human half. We, we get hints of in the first season of the original series. You see a lot of him smirking at people. Um, the real world answer is that Leonard Nimoy hadn't really gotten a firm handle on that character yet, and neither had the directors and neither had Gene exactly what it was going to be. But like this sort of in-universe explanation of that it's his humanity showing through is really fun. Wait, I have one more thing. I want to talk just very quick note about how the episode ends. Mm. Um, they get to the bridge. Captain Pike is like, is this the new boot? I don't really know what that means, but that's what he said. I guess I like boots on the ground, like they're soldiers. Um, and then she pretends to look up his name on the pad. She's like trying to play it cool. She's like, oh yeah, that was uh, Mr. Uh, Spock. I think it's funny in context, but also feels like it. if I were in Spock's position and also not half Vulcan, I would have been like, that ouch, burn. Yeah. I mean, I think she's trying to put him back in his place. I don't know. For me, it played kind of weird. You liked it, though? You thought it was I thought cute? it was funny. I don't think it's nice. <laughs> it actually felt... Um, mean this... girl? Oh, I was going to say very male. Like, nagging almost. Like, a dude playing it cool for, forgets her name. And I think that sort of, like, plays into her uh, less stereotypically feminine characterization. I'm not saying, I, I mean, I'm bringing it up because it was weird, right? So it was like, it was weird. Think? I'm just thinking about the, well, recently when I hooked up with a person at a party and then afterwards asked him what his name was because I didn't remember. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> that was legitimate though. I was not just play acting. That's amazing. You didn't tell me that. <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> All right, so I think that we should take a break now, and when we come back, we'll talk about the other short trek, and we'll talk about Picard. Yes. Woohoo! I know a bank where the wild thyme grows, where ox lips and the nodding violet blows, quite or canopied with luscious woodbine, with sweet musk roses, and with eglantine. Grazie. Welcome back. The next episode that we watched was called Ask Not. It was only 10 minutes long, and it stars Captain Pike. And features a brand new character. A cadet. Cadet Sidhu, who's played by Amrit Kaur, a woman of Indian descent. And she is really awesome. I like that she's a cadet. She looks super young and she's married. Do you want me to summarize it? Um, I can since you summarized right. the last one. Cool. Um, the action is in a tiny room. Cadet Sidhu is there and she's like at her post and 
Captain Pike is brought in in a hood and in handcuffs into this room by people that we don't know who are superior officers. And they say... In a sci-fi hood. It's very sci-fi. Yeah. It's like also Man in the Iron Mask. They are like, can we trust you with this prisoner? He cannot be let out for any reason, like no matter what. And she's like, aye, sir. And as they're leaving, they take off this sci-fi hood and it's Captain Pike. And she's like, oh my God, Captain. Um, And then he spends most of the action trying to convince her to let him go. And she just keeps refusing, even though her husband's in peril, um, even though she cites like a bunch of regulations about why it is that she should let him go. They have this kind of back and forth about about regulations. Um, And she's super smart because she's super on the ball about all of them. And then she holds her own. She does not let him free from his handcuffs and then the lights come on and all of the exploding panels and everything that was happening in the background like stops and it's calm and he takes his own handcuffs off and he's like congratulations cadet you passed so then we learn that it was like a test for her to prove her future success as an officer and I thought it was really cute. So it features number one very briefly at the end. You'll be serving on the Enterprise for the rest of the semester. The rejection was just all part of the test. My plan. We've all learned to expect no mercy from number one. And it's just like, it's emphasizing once again that she's like a hard ass. She's an ice queen. She's a, she's a glacier, whatever, an unmelted, unaffected by climate change glacier. Also, it went by really quickly, but there was some reference to an admiral and I felt like it tread on the admirals are all fuckheads trope. Yes. <laughs> Yes, yes. So uh, he was who Captain Pike was supposedly mutinous toward was an admiral who'd given them uh, shitty directions, which is totally viable. And like as the audience, you can think of all these situations where Picard or uh, Kirk temporarily disobeyed admiral orders, but then like proved it was okay in the end by like making the situation work out all right. Absolutely. So I really liked this performance and it's like, it's just 10 minutes, but you can see that the actress uh, Amrit is really into playing this character. So I looked up an interview with her on Sci-Fi Wire. She says it was an open ethnicity part. After they cast me, they made the name more Indian. Like, I, I like that she's talking about how this was an open ethnicity part and that anybody who seemed like the best actress, that no, like regardless of what they, what skin color they had. That... That's how they cast Grey's Anatomy. Cool. I have some things to say about Captain Pike. In the previous episode, Spock asks number one, what are the three most salient facts about Captain Pike? One. His capacity for hearing out another point of view is exceeded only by his willingness to change his own once he's heard you out. Two, even though he is the most heavily decorated fighting captain in Starfleet, he views resorting to force as an admission of failure. Three, he is utterly unsentimental, except when it comes to horses. Having watched that going into this episode, knowing that he considers violence to be your last resort and a failure, and here he is pleading with this cadet to let him go so that he can, like, go attack some aliens is sort of, like, your first clue that this is not really what's going on. Knowing that about him 
doesn't square with his behavior in that scene. And she ends up saying those same things, citing Starfleet regulations, that um, their engagement, even if the species is being hostile, that they should try to find a peaceful solution first and explore all other avenues. So like at that point, she's not talking about letting him go, but she's talking about like, what is the right course of action? Um, even though he's like leveraging revenge and even though he's leveraging uh, the danger of her husband, he's like, she's like, no, we still should not be violent towards them. So uh, sort of like this return to old school Starfleet ideals. Um, so all of this is like swirled around in a world of the internet where people really want a Captain Pike and number one spinoff. Yeah, it's so, I mean, I kind of do too. Like just watching these, I really like him as a character. He is a really good guy. He's a good leader. And he's Captain Daddy. And he's Captain Daddy. I mean, he Anson Mount is so attractive. Yeah. He's so attractive. And like this version of, of Captain Pike is not a sexist, but actually has like a lot of women working for him in powerful positions. I mean, we, we see him show the kind of leadership in Discovery that we really like. He's transparent. He listens to the opinions of people who might know more than him. Yeah, and not just the opinions, but also like when he's presented with with facts and data that contradict his original opinion, he is willing to change. Yeah. Which is really important in a thing that like, for example, our president does not do. He's a really great character. He's a good actor. Spock is fun. Number one is really great. Why not just have a show set in the original series universe with these great characters who we love. He's a good captain. Like, what? what is wrong with that? Why should I not want that just because it's another white dude captain? Like, should do I really want to let my feminism get in the way of me watching a show I'm going to enjoy? It's not like we have a whole lot of sway over whether or not this actually gets made. Um, I'm sure that I would watch it if it does get made. I think that what concerns me about it is not like the possibility itself but the way that it seems like people want that more than they want more discovery yeah more than they want uh more than they want a woman or person of color as the captain and the lead like this people clamoring for cap a captain pike show in the wake of the fan backlash to Discovery, which is hard to quantify because the show is doing well. Like, it was picked up for a third season. They're making more Star Trek. Right. People love it. People are cosplaying this shit. I think that if... I, I can't I can't imagine a world where Discovery did poorly and they still went ahead and did Picard. Like, I think that Discovery makes Picard possible. Yeah, and so I think that there's, like, a really vocal minority of somewhat racist people welcome to the internet that being said i did have a lot of problems with like there are some legitimate problems with star trek discovery that i think mostly get resolved in season two and i've said this before so i'm not i'm not saying that like that if you criticize star trek discovery you're racist especially if you criticize this stupid klingon design (laughs) but it gets better the legitimate criticism of that show is not that Sonequa Martin-Green is the lead. The criticisms of Discovery that I think are 
appropriate and are not racist are that it struggled with storytelling, deviated pretty heavily from what we appreciate and value about Star Trek, like kind of like a morality play situation. But I don't think that's just Discovery. Like I think that the the like 2009 on films like have this issue too. One of the films is literally called Into Darkness. Right. This is all Batman's fault. <laughs> but Captain Pike was the hope. He was the new hope. For a return to Star Trek values. Mm -hmm. He is unshakable. This test even sort of proves that, that he's looking for people on his ship to be unshakable morally as well and uh, untemptable. Like not just begging her. It was, it was like a very much like a he was the snake and she was Eve. Mm. And he's just like, I can save your husband's life. Just let me go. It'll be fine. I'll even give you like regulations to excuse your behavior so you can defend yourself. And she still did what was right. I know I went back to defending Captain Pike. Yeah. What do you think about clamoring for Captain Pike? Um, I think that this is related to what like what we can get into with Star Trek Picard. It just feels whiter because it is. Yeah. All three of these characters who people want to see at the top of the show are white. Yeah. There's a lot of possibilities about how to incorporate people of color. And like, you know, maybe in a world where Star Trek colon Captain Pike exists, uh, Cadet Sidhu is like a major character. Yes. I would like Like a Wesley-like character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like uh, she's super young, but very precocious and can solve all the problems. Yeah. I like this. I get the sense that the people who are making New Trek today are sensitive to representation and that fan backlash against Sonequa Martin-Green and queer, lesbian, and gay uh, characters. All of that is like, we're doing it anyway. I don't care that you're a racist homophobe. But like, then again, I kind of wonder if Picard is a response to that. Yeah, so let's get into the Picard trailer. Yeah. Uh, we watched the one that came out a few months ago and the one that came out super recently. Like, it seems like a lot of the action in these trailers and presumably in the show itself um, centers around a character named Dodge, who is played by Issa Briones. Um, and she has this, like, mysterious past and she comes to find Captain Picard. Um, at, like, you know, he's left Starfleet and he's at his family's vineyard. Um, and she's like, I need your help. There's a lot of speculation about who she is. By the way, she was born in 1999. Um, <laughs> and we were all 21, Specca. I mean, there's like a horrific battle that he's remembering in his kind of dream that also features data. Um, he goes to visit. Will and Deanna and they have a kid apparently he like recruits some some woman who seems like she's outside of Starfleet played by Michelle Hurd who's a person of color there oh and and then also uh Seven of Nine is coming back yeah so he's like putting together a crew it seems like Starfleet is not gonna help him have an obligation to investigate. There is no we, Jean. Admiral, I am standing up for the Federation for what it should still represent. This is no longer your house, Jean-Luc. Go home. 
So then he has to go put together his own crew, Ocean's Eleven style. Another top secret unauthorized rescue mission. The crew has two women and two men. Um, one of the women is the one you just mentioned. One of the men is a Vulcan who kind of looks like an elf. He's got like long, like Legolas hair. Yeah, they're really returning to uh, kind of original characterization of Vulcans as basically space samurai. Yeah, yeah, he's got, he's a, got a sword. Sword. I'm kind of excited. I know that like I don't really like space battles, but I like hand to hand combat. So that looked pretty cool. Seven of the of nine is going to come back. So then we still have an equal gender if she joins the thing. So then we have Picard and seven and nine. So now it's three men and three women. There was some other guy who I don't think he was even named, but he looked like he was sitting in a captain's chair. He looked human. Also white, though. Also white, though. And the, the other woman is white. She's got blonde hair. It feels like they're bringing back some, but not all of the people from the next generation. And the, the people that they are bringing back, Data included are all white people. Jordy's not coming back. Worf is not coming back. Garrett Wang is not coming back. Seven Nine is coming back. It doesn't seem like I mean, Tuvok's anywhere around. I mean, they're probably not relevant, but I don't know. Tuvok could be hanging out with those Vulcans, maybe. He was a Borg for a minute and a half. He could have been the Admiral. He could have been an Admiral. Oh, my God. Just uh, saying. I love that. Um, that being said, it does look kind of fun. I'm fascinated. Like, I'm intrigued and I want to know what's happening. Uh, yeah. Picard is your favorite. I love I love Picard. Picard is your favorite. You, yeah. You have the teacup that he has. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I, found the, I found the teacup that he always gets Earl Grey hot in and made my friend buy it for me from eBay. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Athena. Yeah. I love that cup. So, yeah, I was just wondering about this, this tension that you're experiencing as someone who really, really loves Captain Picard but seems resistant to this show. Yeah, well, I mean, like, in addition to having a problem with what seems like bringing back only the white people, um, I also have a global problem which is summarized as nostalgia is toxic. Mm. Like, it's not like I don't engage in nostalgia. We are literally making a podcast about Star Trek and there's nostalgia baked in. But I think that, you know, there's a big trend in storytelling that has been going on for a lot of our lifetime. Prequels and sequels and like reboots of stuff that happened in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Those kind of media properties dwarf things that are new, that don't refer back to something that happened decades past. I draw a line between this and quote, make America great again, um, where there's some notion of a past where everything was perfect if only we could live there again, like all of our problems would go away. Okay, I was with you until that point. <laughs> I was with you until that point. And I do think that that's a valid criticism of our pro political culture. I And I, I see the parallel. I don't think there's an, a causality there. I think for some people, there might be a parallel in like their taste. The, the phantom past of Make America Great Again, I mean, they've been using that since Reagan. Like that's been going on for a while. And I, I hear your point about stagnant creativity and, like, stagnant properties. Um, I have a counterpoint. I used to be really bothered by copyright law. Um, copyrights are good, and they're supposed to encourage creativity by letting one person own an idea. The problem that I saw with it is by 
cabining in a story or a narrative or a character in a culture where everyone owns a piece of that character. Everyone owns Mickey Mouse. Everyone owns the Ninja Turtles. um, Everyone owns Cinderella. And we want to create stories. We want to create fan fiction about these properties that we love. And we can't legally do that. I could write a really amazing Star Trek story and uh, not be able to publish it. This bothered me, especially because a lot of Shakespeare's plays, which are like the greatest works of English literature and history, were working with plots that weren't his own, that that had been told in various forms, plays that had been told over and over again because they didn't have those legal protections. And he could take a story, make it better, and come up with like the greatest uh, like works of theater in the English language. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he gets and then he gets riffed on for like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah. We look at mythology. And those are stories that were retold and retold and retold for generations until we got like the really good versions of them and then like maybe Homer wrote them down and these characters were so rich because they belonged to everyone in society. And this used to really bother me because I knew this and I saw that like that couldn't happen for us because of capitalism and corporations owning properties and like like descendants owning properties and them never like coming into the public domain so we can do something cool with them until this trend started happening the best writers and the best fan fiction people and the next generation and the best directors get to come up and interact with these properties so instead of getting sued for writing a spider-man comic you don't have the rights to you get hired by marvel and write the spider-man comic for them and you get to tell a new and different story Mm -hmm. with that same character and we're sort of recreating that thing that i thought was lost and Mm -hmm. so some of these things are good and cool i like that there's an alternate timeline of star trek and that we can see what would happen with these characters in a different setting there is potential for star trek picard to do something really cool that TNG only touched on, which is deal with Picard's PTSD and tell something about the Borg or about the Romulans or whatever the big bad is with the cube in an interesting narrative arc instead of in an episodic one. So that's my rant. Yeah, and I see see those opportunities. It feeds back into my kind of ambivalence about Picard to begin with because I am excited about it and I do love him as a character and I love Sir Patrick Stewart as an actor. Like, I bought a Berkeley rep uh, season in order to see him and Ian McKellen in a play once. What? I'm a fan. I am also, a, I am also conscious of the fact that he's yeah. very old. Hiring him, like, probably means that there's less space for other people to step in and also be captains and Starfleet captains. In a way, there's infinite room. In a way, there isn't infinite room. Oh, my God. They have to kill him. They're, no, he might die. Yeah. I mean, he's he going to die. Also it'll, just, a, it'll be a better old. story if he dies. No, I mean the character. Yeah, sure. It'll be a better story if he dies, and then they can pass it on to these like other characters to like continue something else. Mm, that's interesting. All right. I called it now. Picard is dying in Star Trek Picard controversial opinion man you guys are all gonna like cancel your subscriptions to this podcast (laughs) right now i'm so sorry i don't want to kill picard you guys i'm sorry you know he's older than a boomer but like hashtag boomers need to retire oh my god (laughs) my parents need jobs becca (laughs) i mean they need jobs because 
the because like the social fabric of our society does not allow for them to retire comfortably like i don't think my parents would both still be working as much as they are if they could retire and actually support themselves in retirement bernie sanders give our parents money so they can retire yeah elizabeth maybe warren Uh, I'm, i'm just pushing your buttons and i know her last name we love you and we appreciate that you are listening and we appreciate how much you love star trek and i want to exist in a world where the like where your generation has an opportunity to retire and like not have the fabric of our society fall apart when you do you know okay boomers we millennials are gonna head out Uh, let us know what you think about Captain Pike and number one. Let us know what you think about the short treks. Live long and prosper. Live long and prosper. Peace and long life. Intertractional is a production of Federation and Fempire, written and produced by Ryan Ascalisi and Becca Matola Barnes. Original music by Danny Kavka. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Intertractional. We want to hear from you. Join our Facebook group to discuss this episode with us and with other fans. Email us at intertractional at gmail.com. You can even send us a voice memo. Visit our website at intertractional.com for show notes, images, and citations. Intertractional is available on all podcast platforms, including iTunes. If you like this podcast, help others find it by taking a moment to rate and review us and subscribe on iTunes. It really makes a big difference. Donate to us at paypal.me slash federation and fempire. That's Vampire spelled like Empire with an F before it. Because it's our Lady Empire. Vampire. The motion picture was like, we don't know what to do with the two and a half hours that we're going to pour things in your eyeballs.